welcome to the Game of Crowdfunding Interview Edition, recorded November 13th, 2013. You know, we're going to have a good conversation here today, I think, and uh, I'm pretty excited about this one. Usually I go right into having our guests introduce themselves, but I'm going to step up front for a second here because I want to have this mini intro before he gets a chance to introduce himself. We are going to be talking to somebody that has a Kickstarter project on Kickstarter right now, but happens to have been a part of the Kickstarter environment for quite a while. In fact, I went back and looked at my Kickstarter backer history. He created the fourth project that I ever backed on Kickstarter. So he is definitely part of... uh my enthusiasm or the start of my enthusiasm towards Kickstarter and being able to crowdfund people's projects and seeing all of these great games come out of that environment. Not only that, but he is somebody that was on Kickstarter. Again, this was back in 2011 where a lot of the, the rules and the processes and all of that stuff weren't developed yet. So kind of a pioneer and getting something funded on Kickstarter, at least in the gaming realm. So let's go ahead and talk to this individual who is joining me on Skype today. This is Don Lloyd from Nightworks. The game that we're going to be talking about is Dark Horse, uh, and we will get to that. But of course, as always, Don, let's get to know you a little bit. So first of all, thanks for coming on. This is, uh, I'm so glad that we got to do this. Just a little... Uh, heads up to the listeners. Don and I were supposed to talk last week. You may have noticed that there hasn't been the game of crowdfunding stuff recently. Uh, we also had to cancel the last episode of All Us Geeks because my back went out. And unfortunately, my back went out the week that Don and I were originally supposed to talk. My schedule was booked out. Luckily, something opened up today and Don accepted my invitation. And I'm so happy about that. So again, thanks for coming on uh, and having this conversation with me. Well, that's great. I, I love to be on the show and I was really super excited and I've already communicated that to you to actually get in touch with one of the original backers and get a chance to talk to that backer on a podcast and just really air out things with what happened back in 2011 and, and some of the things that I don't think the community knows out there what, you know, it felt like to be an early adopter with crowdfunding. They just know the end result now as of late 2012 and then all of 2013. I completely agree that that's one of the things that, I mean, not only simply because again, I was one of those backers and, and again, this was early on in me getting involved in Kickstarter as well. And, uh, this, you know, again, that this predates, I think my backing your original project, Dark Horse may even, it, it's pretty close. It may predate the podcast itself. Nope. I think we had just been, we had just launched uh, maybe like two, three months before, if I remember right. So pretty early, even in the podcast, as far as the podcast is concerned, this was before we were really doing Kickstarter segments and, and interviewing people off of Kickstarter. And you're completely correct. That one of the things that excites me about this is the fact that almost everybody I interview is coming into Kickstarter today. And they're coming into it with all of the knowledge that people like yourself didn't have at their fingertips. So they're, they're coming into it fully armed where you were coming into it almost with a blank slate. 
So that kind of excites me. Again, we get to talk about what happened back then versus your, your current project. And, and that's going to be a lot of fun. But before that, since, uh, this is a segment from all us geeks, we always like to ask, what makes you a geek, sir? Well, I think I've been a geek ever since I was a little tiny geek way back in the days. Uh, I was born and raised in North Dakota. Me and uh, Lance Mixter have talked about that quite a bit. We actually lived, I think, roughly 50 miles away from each other. And, of course, you know, we didn't know. Even though North Dakota only has like 100 people in it, we didn't know each other, of course, back then. But we're both almost exactly the same age, same birthday. And long story short, going way back to my days in North Dakota, I was into comics. I was into, you know, Star Wars trading cards. Very early on, I got into computers. So I had a little Tandy and Radio Shacks. I was recording stuff on a cassette tape. People may not even know that you can record, you know, coding and programming to a cassette tape. But I was making little games. I was playing uh, uh, everything that you've heard of in the past on the Apple IIe, the Oregon Trail, you know, little green screened Oregon Trail, and you would die and shoot the deer. And I was making computer games back then, I mean, really simple stuff. And uh, going forward in time, I wanted to be a computer game designer, and that's what kind of got me into what I do now. I'm a software engineer. So way back in the day, I was uh, building shareware, if you're familiar with that term. Mm -hmm. And basically, I was doing my Kickstarter type of activities, but it was back then with a computer game, trying to get it out there. And I think I'm a geek through and through. I was at uh, the Gen Con convention in 93 when uh, Magic the Gathering was released. (laughs) Nice. So uh, I I was in it from the start, and I got really heavily hooked into that. And uh, I got I wanted to I wanted to start a hobby shop back in uh, late in the late nineties. And the distributor talked to me, and I asked, "Well, what's hot right now?" And he said, "Well, there's this game called Settlers of Catan." And I said, "Okay, well, I'll buy like two or three of those." And I started up my hobby shop, and that really was a catalyst. Not so much for me to get into Euro games, but for me to attach myself to something else. And then fall in love with the concept of trying to create that thing. So way back in the day, I tried to create comics. I tried to create computer games. Well, when I fell in love with board games in late 90s, I started to try to create them. So in a nutshell, that is my geek history. You know what? You said something that I don't think anybody else has ever said. And it might be because maybe there's not as many of us that remember it. But you make a really good point. The old uh, shareware philosophy very much is the computer side of early crowdfunding, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was, you know, hey, hey here, here's, a, here's a game, here's a few levels. Uh, please give me a few bucks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, back in, uh, it was, this was in 92, 93. And, and back then, I remember the Internet wasn't even really established or, or well known. And you're still getting these, you know, paper catalogs, these cheap paper catalogs with all these listings. You had like a, like almost like a Twitter feed. You had like so many characters describe what you were doing and they charged $3.99 for that. And so I was writing rules for a game back in 92 or 93. So I, I cut my teeth on building games almost in a professional capacity or, or a simulated professional capacity back in early 90s. And uh, it's just gone on from there. Were, were you a bulletin boarder, sir? I was. Uh, oh, see? PBS. <laughs> Legend of the uh, Red Jack- Dragon? Um, I, heard, I heard of it, and it just wasn't <laughs> on it. I was on Jabberwocky. Uh, that was one of mine. 
So uh, and 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 the muds. You remember the muds? Oh yeah. Well, that's, yeah. yeah. Multi-user dungeons, yeah. and which kicked off to the uh, MMOs nowadays. So yeah. uh, I'm a long-time geek. The old uh, Neverwinter Nights game on AOL. Oh yeah, that was like the only reason I cared to have AOL because that <laughs> game was so awesome. <laughs> yep. Oh man, you know what? You also took me back too because I still have a very loving fondness of my uh, Tandy that I had. Because mm-hmm. that damn machine was so expandable that by the time I, I by the time I got rid of it, I actually passed it off to somebody else, and it was more powerful than pretty much any other computer that you could just buy straight out of the store. Because <laughs> I yep, put so I much into that. it. <laughs> yep, the <Awesome>. cocoa. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So uh, one of the other questions we like to ask: Do you have any passions uh, that you have a geek level passion for that most people might not consider geek related? Well, I, from everything I just mentioned, I pretty much gravitate towards uh, all things geek. But the other hobby that I have on the side, and I've heard of other people saying, you know, uh, craft beers and whatnot. But I, I'm a I'm a chef. I'm a longtime chef, and I, I study. I put the same passion. My big thing is creating, creating from scratch, and, and seeing, you know, what you have in front of you. And, and with food, you know, you're tasting it. You're trying to figure out different things. So um, now that the internet is is so powerful. Uh, I end up researching and studying recipes. I, I've studied French cuisine before, different, uh, the five mother sauces, and I, I've recreated things, make your own hollandaise sauce and, and different types of recipes. I don't do a lot of baking. I'm more of a, uh, more of a, a manly guy's cook type of thing, but <laughs> I can cook me up some tasty stuff. I'll tell you that. That is awesome. Yeah. I don't think uh, anybody's uh, mentioned that one before. I, I enjoy cooking. I don't do it as much as I should. Probably, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's it's one of those things, and it's been the last few years that I really kind of started gravitating towards it. But just the uh, idea of I don't even like like I'll take a recipe and I'll go, okay, here's what I think should be done different, and I'll yep. just try it. And it's it, there's something just about it, right? When it especially when it turns out, every once in a while you get the bad one, but uh, after mm-hmm. a while you get a pretty good idea of the different flavors and stuff and and where they should go and I've actually uh, been pretty proud of my fiance often because she's she's not that way either and she's very much no this is what the recipe says and a couple times she said oh we should try this and this and I'm like there you go ah, expanding <laughs> the horizons I like that yeah so that was great <laughs> you know what all right so we're gonna we're gonna I hope you've taken your vitamin supplements and everything because I'm gonna put your memory to the test here because we're gonna go back. We're going to go All way right. Back. We're doing the way back machine. We're doing, we're doing the way back. So you already, you already told us. Oh, are you, you're still a computer programmer? Is yeah, I'm a software engineer. Software yeah. engineer. Yeah. Should have known that. That's, that's my, well, I think my title is systems engineer now. They've changed it like three or four times, but <laughs> so that's, that's your, uh, get up in the morning and go to work job, huh? Yeah, that's that's correct. I've been doing that for, I don't know, 15 years, and I love it because, and you're going to see a, a little pattern in the theme here, uh, I get to create stuff from scratch, and I get to look at it and test it and get feedback. So uh, that's that's been my whole life. Uh, if I couldn't create things, I would be a very sad dawn. <laughs> All right, where I want to take you then is, I'm going to do, I think I'm going to do chicken or egg with you here. Uh, was Dark Horse first, or was creating Nightworks as a company first? Creating Nightworks as a company was first. Okay. Uh, first by, and this might kind of surprise you, but uh, Dark Horse and what it was called earlier, 
uh, was actually created back in 2001. And that was on the heels of my very first endeavor to, to professionally manufacture and mass produce a game, and that was called Shadow Wars. So if you look on Board Game Geek, you'll notice an entry uh, going back to 2000, 2001, and uh, I made a fantasy board game called Shadow Wars, and that was uh, something that I was trying to pimp at Gen Con with Fantasy Flight and Rio Grande and and some other things back then. So uh, talking to publishers and, and trying to figure out who can manufacture a board game for you, whether it's abroad or, or locally, that goes way back to 2000, actually 99, because that's when I really started to get into it. And then uh, in 2000 is when the game was finished. So was Nightworks then coming off of that game not having a power? Where where did Nightworks come up? Where did you decide, you know what, I need to create a company called Nightworks? I had a company name, and I'm almost embarrassed to say it, for the shareware <laughs> games. Okay. But I, I had a company name and a thought process back then as far as what I wanted to do with games in general. Nightworks was just putting a company name onto Shadow Wars. So board games in general and Shadow Wars, actually it goes a little bit back for that. Shadow Wars was my attempt at a collectible card game. So I actually uh, was really heavy into Magic the Gathering. And I wanted, of course, back then it was so great to make your own collectible card game. And Shadow Wars was a CCG back then. And, and of course, very quickly, I found out there was no future for CCGs because Magic, you know, Wizards of the Coast was eating that up. But uh, long story short, Nightworks is my rebranding to go down card games and board games. Mm -hmm. And just for the history buffs, my shareware company name was Crystal Wolf. So uh, <laughs> that was uh, my, my uh, geeky name back then. <laughs> I've got a, a fairly good idea because obviously, like you said, we've, we've got a running theme here. It's the ability to be creative and, and take things from uh, scratch to production, if you will. Mm -hmm. But what, Okay, so you've already got a little bit of a history with, say, the uh, the shareware side of things. What made the flip? Was it getting into magic and that kind of stuff? I mean, wh where did you decide, all right, I, I need to get into the board game realm? Yeah, that's what it was. It was Gen Cons. It, it was going down to Gen Con before I really, you know, was that deep into board and card games. I didn't really see Gen Con as something that I, you know, was interested in going to. As soon as I took a little nibble, then I was attracted down to the whole, you know, notorious world of board and card games. And that goes back to like 93 or so. So I'm going to date myself. I graduated in 1990, uh, went into the army, got out. And in 93, uh, that's basically when I started getting into collectible card games and board games and whatnot. That's really the catalyst. The catalyst. And, you know, I think about it. I, I think someone invited me to go down to Gen Con. Back in '93, that being my very first one, and uh, that was the big, uh, the big eye opener. I started walking around these different booths, and I saw, you know, these little games in a box. And my world before that had entirely been computer games. I am a huge computer game fan: uh, real-time strategy, Command and Conquer, Dune, those sorts of things. So a lot of the reasons to get into into board games was I found out very quickly that there was no way in heck that I would ever get a computer game published. It just wasn't going to happen. So then I thought to myself, okay, I can't publish computer games. Even back then when it was easier to publish computer games because one or two guys could do it and then just send off a blocky graphics, you know, to a shareware or whatnot. But it was because 
I didn't know how to pursue that dream. And then I picked another type of project where I could. And that's when uh, everything started to spin off. So early on, it kind of sounds like you were actually were in the design mode. You weren't looking to publish yourself necessarily as, at the start. That's what it kind of sounds like anyway. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's that's correct. There's never been dreams of fame and fortune. I'm not that type of person. The money doesn't really matter to me. It's the creation of, of these ideas and, and interacting with people. And you'll hear that a lot uh, from me that I want to be a part of the community. I want to reach out and, and, and help. And I have helped quite a few uh, indie game designers that are just getting out there and, and they don't know, you know necessarily what Board Game Geek is. And I've contacted people and I've gave them tips and hints on projects where they weren't going to make it. And I've created dialogues uh, back and forth because of that. It's really that interaction. It's the interaction in, in the game community talking about something that I love, and that's design and creation. So at what point did you get to where you, you knew you were going to be doing at least some self-publishing? That was right around when I tried to release Shadow Wars, and I had crafted the, the company name Nightworks, mm-hmm. uh, and I did a website. I started working on some other games, and I, I got really good feedback on that game, but I was hand-producing it. So uh, I was, you know, printing out stickers and placing them on tiddlywinks. Uh, I was printing out cards uh, with an inkjet printer. I produced about 75 games. And for the most part, I'd say 60, 70 or even more, uh, the percentage of the people that took a look at it really fell in love with it. And I'm actually at some point going to re-release that, do a second edition. And I'm going to scratch that itch for a fantasy <laughs> war game and stay away from, you know, there's another war game side to board games. Right. It's not going to be your standard war game. It's going to be more of a Euro hybrid. Going back to the whole shareware thing, I mean, it sounds very grassroots then when you were first creating Nightworks and kind of uh, selling the game out of the trunk of your car, if you will. <laughs> That's correct, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Uh, back then, again, when you're, you know, you're taking Shadow Wars and selling it, you know, hand-making each one and selling them that way. Were you aware at that time of what it really means to be a game publisher? I would say so. I, I mean, I understood all of the processes and dynamics that a, a company like Fantasy Flight would go through. And you have to imagine, uh, if we fast forward back to, you know, 93, 2000, Fantasy Flight and some of these other publishers weren't as big as they were now because they've had 13 years to grow. So yeah. I've walked up and I've talked to people at Fantasy Flight and I said, hey, you know, can I, can I have some, a little bit of your time? I can come back. And I've showed them games that I've created. So I, I understood uh, what it meant to be a publisher on how you had to attend conventions. You had to have a marketing presence, a website. You had to have press releases. You had to work with artists. I was working with artists and I was, you know, developing rules and trying to market myself as well. And early on, I was really trying to tap uh, publishers to get some of my games, you know, created. And uh, we all know that that's, you know, with these larger companies, uh, they receive hundreds of game submissions that, that they don't really have a time, have time to look at. And I, I learned that in time. So I just kind of gave up and I thought to myself, okay, well, I need to publish this on my own. That's where Kickstarter came along. You kind of hit on something that I think is is kind of important to really stress a bit of, and and that's the fact that even as of five or six years ago, 
Fantasy Flight wasn't anything like what people think of it as today, even. Uh-huh. Uh, and, and so if you start going back into late 90s, I mean, at that time, Fantasy Flight was still becoming what Fantasy Flight was hoping to become someday. I mean, they were, they were still pretty early on. They were still the, the little guy. They were one of those little side booths at Gen Con back in those days. And it, in some ways it was, it was kind of nice because I've, I've, you know, they're here in Minnesota and, and I've done stuff with them as well. And I, I used to, uh, I work with them off and on at Gen Con and I used to run, uh, local tournaments and stuff. So I, I, I've got some connection there too. And in some ways back in those days, the one nice thing was you could pretty much, like you said, you could walk up to somebody, you could talk to just about anybody back then. Now it's, mm-hmm. it's not so much anymore that way. Uh, it's, it's kind of the, the, you know, they've blown up and they've got all these great licenses and stuff. And, and with that, um, it's, it's become this massive entity now that's, kind of hard to wade through sometimes even even knowing people there uh exactly. it takes a while to get a, any kind of anything back but it, it's kind of at least from my perspective and listening to you talk about that and to think about it because like i said i i'm fully aware even six years ago what fantasy flight was trying to accomplish at that time so to take mm-hmm. it back to the late 90s to know that you were approaching them at that point Kind of saying, Hey, can, uh, can I play in your sandbox a little bit? <laughs> is, uh, is an interesting visual, I guess, for me. Again, knowing the company as, as I do. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's, times it's, have changed. Uh, oh, yeah. Let me ask you this then. So you've kind of gone through those motions and you've, I don't want to say resigned yourself, but you've decided, okay, if it's going to get published, I need to publish it. Is that something that you're actually interested in or was it just, I, my game needs, I, I want my game out there, so I'm going to deal with the publishing side. Well, I, it's kind of a, a double-edged sword. And, uh, I know some people, you know, go on, you know, three different camps. You know, they, they, they bear that burden mm-hmm. or they enjoy it or it's just something that, uh, there are parts of it that are enjoyable and other parts are not. And I, I'm right in the middle where the marketing and the contacts and, and getting to know somebody and working with a distributor or talking with people uh, that can help you along as far as your dreams go, that part I truly enjoy. Uh, even interacting with the manufacturers. You know, if I'm uh, trying to interact with someone in China and I'm just getting to know them and, and what a piece of their world is, I find that incredibly fascinating. But on the flip side, what people may not know is that being a publisher is sort of like being a manager. And I was that a couple years back as well. It, it breaks down to being uh, an accountant and a secretary, a CPA. You're, you're an adult babysitter of sorts. And once you start getting designers underneath you, you truly are starting to be an adult babysitter. And I say that out loud, and I don't mean that against any of my uh, designers that I'm working with. But in that regard, if someone's not familiar with the market, and they're not familiar with Kickstarter, you're basically mentoring them and explaining things and telling them, well, no, this is a certain market share. Kickstarter's trending towards this. That wouldn't really work on Kickstarter. That would work in an underground market. That's educational. So it's a trying thing at, at, at times. And then the other flip side of the coin is I want to design. And, and as I mentioned, you know, I want to create. I want to develop. So I'm stuck in one of those roles where I don't mind publishing, but I've told a lot of other friends and gaming groups down here in Colorado that 
it's really sucking up a lot of time to where I want to work on the Shadow War 2nd Edition. I've got a sci-fi game that I think has got some great stuff in it, and I and I can't work because I'm trying to do marketing and Kickstarter campaigns. And not to say that's not an enjoyable part, but it's also a sidetrack. And I have a family, and and, uh, and I have a very active job, so these things clash. When you only have a couple hours mm-hmm. to do anything at night, whether it's you know working on uh, models or building a boat, that's not much hobby. Or I should say that's not much time to put against your hobby. And then the weekends are the only time you can do it. So publishing really pulls away from that. Right. And, you know, you've, you've kind of touched on it, but yeah, it's, it's not, like you said, it, it, the Kickstarter stuff is happening and, uh, it's, it's, it's not a bad thing, but it is a time consuming thing for sure. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you, you've got to put a lot of time in there. So let me ask you this question then, since you, have Nightworks and you obviously got, you know, your, your flagship of dark horses out there, which would, you know, I, I would consider that your flagship since it was the one that's successful and you're doing the expansion for it, even though you have shadow wars, but you're trying to bring shadow wars back. So you've got your flagship kind of out there and, and you're getting settled in. Do you have any thoughts towards publishing other people's stuff or is it really just you you were using it for your self-publishing stuff um, and, and you don't want to necessarily get into that realm? I had a big, long, hard talk with myself <laughs> and I told myself, am I going to take it in that direction or am I just going to be a publisher that just goes and, and publishes his own stuff? And there are quite a few of other uh, people out there that are getting some success on Kickstarter where they are the, basically the publisher and the designer and that will never separate. But uh, I knew for me to, because publishing is such an active thing, I had to get other designers under my belt because if I'm going to take this seriously, something's going to suffer. It's either I'm, how many games and the quality games I put out is going to suffer or the publishing side is going to suffer and there's not going to be a company. So with that being said, I've got three other designers that I've already signed contracts with. Okay. And uh, one of them has a game that's on Board Game Geek in an unpublished state, and he's a good friend of mine down in, in uh, Pueblo, Colorado. And uh, it's going to be the very next game we release. And I'm, I'm working with him on it, but it's his baby, and, it's, and he's the primary designer on it. And uh, we're, we're going to go ahead and, and release that come early 2014, or I should say we're going to put it on Kickstarter in early 2014. Nice. And uh, we have a magician game. Um, that's coming out, uh, rival magicians try to compete for fans and whatnot. And that's going to be a Euro and we're working on a lighter game, uh, like a can't stop type of game where you're moving blocks around. And there's, uh, there's a couple other people that I'm talking with them about design. So there's a lot of different things moving in the works. And that's mainly because there's been two years that have passed since Dark Horse back in 2011 till now. Mm-hmm. And uh, 2012 was a nightmare for me as far as getting anything done on the publishing side. Mm-hmm. But I still had balls up in the air and I was juggling things. And I was trying to still keep things in motion as far as contacting these other designers, driving down to Denver, driving down to Pueblo, and interacting with people, going to game groups. Because if you don't stay in the game community and you lock yourself up in a hole, I think both your publishing and your designing is going to suffer. You have to know what the trends are. So throw on top of the uh, all of the effort behind publishing and being a designer, you also have to be out there and know what's coming out, what are the new mechanics, mechanisms, the trends, 
and and keep apprised of the game community in general. Cool. That's that's exciting. You're going to have uh, other things out there. We're going to be seeing a lot of Nightworks here in the uh, future. Yes. Yes. If I have anything to say about it, yes. <laughs> so uh, you got Shadow Wars, your baby, uh, Dark Horse, your baby for Kickstarter. Uh, you've got the expansion out right now. You talked about some other games that you've kind of are working on that are yours. Have you, I kind of warned you this was coming down. Uh-oh. <laughs> Have you developed a game design process or are there pieces of a process in, in place? Uh, I know it might change depending on the type of game you're working on, but do, do you have a process or a workflow that you like to attempt to follow for your designs? That That is actually a, a really interesting question. And yes, I do. And it all stems back to being a software engineer. When I came down to Colorado back in 99, 2000, also the start of my company, that's when I got into the technical field. And I was a junior engineer, a junior developer. And I was taught from scratch at the ground level, what does it take to be a software engineer? What are the life cycle processes and what are the models that you use to build a piece of software? And just because of the type of person that I am, no matter how nerdy that may be, I fell in love with these processes. So there are software lifecycle processes that I apply directly to my games. And people may think I'm crazy, but I take that sort of spiral development and I roll it into designing a game. And I noticed on one of your other interviews, you had talked about, do rules come first or are they an afterthought? And the way I design things uh, there's a design document. There's With software, there's an architecture document, which can easily be applied to board games. Mm -hmm. So I create things of that nature that kind of break down almost like a sales sheet or a cut sheet that you would use to send off to a publisher. I create cut and sales sheets for every idea that I have. I have about 72 of them so far. And I pick and choose and I add to them as the game progresses. Dark Horse and Rebels and Rogues had the draft architecture design and rules behind it crafted before there was prototype materials. The science fiction game that I have has three hours of audio recorded and about 15 pages of documentation, not rules per se, but the general flow and mechanisms and, and type of things I'd like to add. So I already know things like there's going to be 48 cards in the character deck for this sci-fi game or how many planets have been used on the tokens. So before I actually get to the point of, okay, I'm ready, it, it reaches a certain boiling point, a catalyst or some other spark happens. With Dark Horse, the spark was Kingsburg. So I had this cut sheet and I had this idea of working with Dark Horse in 2001, and it sat there and it simmered and stewed, and I, I look back at it every you know year or so. And then I saw Kingsburg, and I have a lot of gaming groups that I attend, and I saw Kingsburg and I said, that's it. What is this wonderful mechanic where you're placing dice on, on you know action spaces? And uh, the Dice Euro uh, concept back in 2009, when I first saw Kingsburg, was quickly folded and incorporated into the batter. And that was how Dark Horse came about. So as far as what kind of processes I have, I steal liberally from uh, software design. I go through prototypes and alphas and betas. I go to gold. I consider a, a certain product gold, and I, this, I, there's certain things that make that gold. I have certain documents that I need to create and mark it down. I track every uh, playtest. So I have these little score pads that I create and I track the playtests and I number and date them and I, and I show the players and I show a trend. For example, 
I say this quite a bit, but Dark Horse had a, I stopped tracking at 174 playtests. I really take the design seriously. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that just because I'm doing that, I'm creating this stellar, you know, awesome, great game. It's just what I enjoy doing. Uh, if I want to be anal and nitpicky about how I approach what I love, then I think it just makes for a, a better way to track things. So at any given time, you could give me about five or ten minutes and I could pop on Dropbox and I could show you all the documents leading up to this design and, and why it was created and the mechanics and, the, and how I target. When I created Dark Horse, I specifically targeted an audience using a specific mechanic and a specific setting. So I had the theme is never tacked on. And I know some designers do this. They tack on the theme later, or a really good designer will go to a publisher and then they'll decide what does this what theme best works for these mechanics. Right. And that's all decided up front with me. I roll that ball around in the mud multiple times to realize, okay, this truly makes sense to be a Wild West game. So uh, I do take a lot of pride in how I design that stuff. I, I like that you uh, gave a little nod to uh, Kingsburg there and, and that you... Uh... It got some inspiration from that. I had a game, post-apocalyptic type game that I had been playing around with, and there was one piece that just wasn't working out real well for me. And then I started playing Alien Frontiers, and I was like, "That is, that's that's the kind of thing I need to do." <laughs> so it's it's it, it's one of those things where it's and I, I mean, uh, some people will say, you know, uh, lock yourself away and just focus on on your game and don't look elsewhere and, <laughs> and, and that stuff. And you know, and then you have other people like. Uh, my buddy Chevy, Chevy Dodd, who will basically tell you, you know, not play everything, design all kind of things, but get as much as you can into your tool belt. And uh, I, I very much believe in that <laughs> versus uh -huh. never look at anything. Now, there is a game I know that's out there that I uh, that's similar to one that I was kind of working on that I promised myself I wouldn't look at <laughs> just to see um, if I come up different. But right. in general, <laughs> there's some good stuff out there, and you never know where you're going to get inspiration. Yeah, exactly. And, and I and you were saying that, and I was thinking in my mind, it's like someone getting into woodworking and only having a certain set of tools to work, and they have a chisel, and they have a saw, and they force themselves to lock themselves in a room and try to make something beautiful, and they're bypassing all of these other awesome, you know, power tools and what they could do. You know, every mechanic and every mechanism, the flow, the setting, all these games, ideas, and, and all these other games that are coming out, they are adding new tools and plugins and pieces to the software that you can plug into yourself like a little cyborg. And you can just crank out a game as long as you know what you're doing and you're comfortable. And I think if you don't get out there and play games, you're really crippling yourself. Because I've, I've worked with some designers, not, nobody that I've actually signed, that I can tell that their game experience goes to Puerto Rico, Settlers, and maybe if one play of Agricola. And I can see that. And I know that some of their ideas, they, they can't come up with, oh, you should use this, or what, what does a hidden agenda mean? And, and they don't see it, they don't know it. And they're these perfect answers to problems that if they played more games, they would be able to see that. Yeah, it's definitely play as much as you can, I, I say. Yep, <laughs> And exactly. as many different types of things as you can. Mm -hmm. All right. Do you want to uh, take this in chronological order, or do you want to talk about uh, the, the current one before we talk about the previous one? What What's your preference? I'm actually open to either. 
whatever you think would be uh, better to start off with. Well, let's let's do the chronological, and we'll so we'll probably end up intermixing in lessons. I'm assuming then this way instead of having them all at the end. But we'll uh, open it back up towards the end if there's uh, something else you want to share. So Dark Horse again was in 2011. And just to give people an idea, a concept. Now, if you haven't seen Dark, why don't you go ahead and give the high-level pitch for for Dark Horse and what it is before we go into any numbers? Sure, no problem. Dark Horse is a game that's based around Dice Euro, so players take turns rolling dice and placing those dice on actions based upon what number that they roll. The setting behind the game is that all the players are land barons, and they're coming to Dark Horse County, and they're trying to build out the best town-city rail network. So you've got that element of the game in there to where you're trying to build build towns so you can get more resources, and that's all done through the dice. And I've tried to make it to where the uh, analysis paralysis, the AP behind some of these choices are not so difficult because you're only rolling two dice. So in Dark Horse, you only roll two dice, and you have the option to place a die on another action to where you can get a third die. But beyond that, you have to make decisions revolving around two dice. And once you've placed on one action, it goes to the next player. So you don't have to worry about someone trying to figure out where how to place three dice onto the board. It's they make one decision... And they have to think about, well, if I don't take this action now, can the person to my right take the action before I can? So you have the that tension to where turn order really matters in the game. So you're building towns and cities, and, and you're, you're building out your rails. And the major scoring to the game is how many towns are connected to your cities by rail. So you really want to pay attention to how well you build out your town-city rail network. And then, of course, like a lot of other Euro games, there is an ability to collect victory points, which I call influence. So the game can end by hitting a certain number of points in influence, or the game can end by placing all your towns and cities on the board. And that is the core game of Dark Horse. One of the things, like you said, that I kind of like is you've shrunk down the analysis paralysis quite a bit, because that's one of the things in Kingsburg that can bog down a game is the analysis paralysis that can tend to happen. Love the game, but I've been in games where I didn't know if it was going to end. <laughs> <laughs> yep. So this, and if anybody hasn't checked, so again, you, in the show notes, I'm going to put a link to the original Kickstarter. Uh, and of course, the, the Kickstarter that's going on right now for the expansion. I'll put the expansion first. I, I want you guys to go check that out right away. But just to uh, see what I'm talking about here. But this is not... A small game. This is not a uh, put this in your back pocket game by any means. This is a you know regular size box board game with some heft to it. What were you asking for back in 2011 to get this game made? I foolishly asked for ten thousand dollars. No, no, no. You asked for eight. Oh, that's right. I did. <laughs> you almost got ten. That's right. Oh, you asked for eight thousand. So again, that that's the kind of thing that we kind of want to talk about in this conversation. This kind of thing that that Don and I have had side conversations about about then and now. This again, this is you, you, on on the shelf, good sized box, some weight in it, good you know, a good map, you know, thick hex tiles, dice, you know, all these tokens, these nice thick cardboard stock tokens, cardstock tokens, and stuff. And now think about 
what you're looking at on Kickstarter today for that type of game and what they're asking for. And Don was asking for $8,000 back in 2011 to get this game created. Got just shy of 10. How did that work for you, Don? <laughs> I don't know a better well, way to really <laughs> transition into that. I, I'm assuming not great, but... No, and in fact, it created a huge ripple effect because I fully went into it, and a lot of backers will do this, or project creators will do this, where they'll think to themselves, I'm willing to back a certain amount. I'm willing to tack in uh, 5000 6000 mm-hmm. And that's exactly what I thought as well. I asked for eight, and I was fully uh, ready to, right when the project ended, uh, put in another 6000 because that's exactly what I needed to uh, get the game manufactured. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't necessarily taken into a lot of things like distribution. I did actually, you know, I was aware that at the end of the project, I would have to ship these things out. Mm-hmm. So, you know, $10, $11 for a flat rate box to go somewhere. And uh, I, I fully was aware that Kickstarter was going to take 5%. Amazon wanted 3%. There was fees involved. And uh, even with that all being said, somehow I put $8,000 in in my goal. And uh, we went forward and uh, it, it actually hurt the company quite a bit because I went and printed a thousand copies, which now, you know, in hindsight, I wonder if I should have printed so many. Not that it didn't do well, but initially when I first fired off those games and I was sitting here not knowing much about distribution, not to say that I know a lot more about distribution now, but it was a surprise, you know, and I was able to sell decent amounts of copies, but it took a, a grassroots effort. It took going to conventions and it took following, you know, Twitter accounts and talking to people on Facebook and getting them excited and interested in the game. I almost wish the game and I really appreciate my backers and I love each and every one of them. But if we would have failed and I would have relaunched just two or three months later, the summer of 2011, or more specifically, the, the fall of 2011, is when things exploded. That's when a lot of big Kickstarter indie publishers started to get onto the scene. Dice Hate Me uh, released their first project. Some other big companies that, you know, and, and Tasty Minstrel had already been on, and they had, what's that one game they first uh, put out there? Uh, the card game. Uh, can't remember offhand. Um, not Eminent? <laughs> Eminent domain. Yeah. That's it. Yeah. So anyway, they had gotten forty-eight thousand back then, um, and that was back in two thousand ten. So they they preceded me on, on getting a very solid large amount, but uh, it would have behooved me to to try to held back, and, and I didn't know. I didn't know back then. There was no track history of people saying, "Whoa, you know what? I need to cancel this." I right. I didn't know that. I didn't think anything about that. And it just rode out to its conclusion. Again, these are these are things that we kind of want to point out. This is back when Kickstarter was a fairly blank slate. I mean, there was no kick track back then. Mm-hmm. There was no, uh, I mean, Richard and stuff was around, but I mean, he wasn't as prevalent as he is today, Richard Bliss. I mean, he was still kind of getting his his uh, stuff off the ground as well. And again, it's it was a, a newish community, so we all kind of didn't know each other that well. There wasn't, say, like a Jamie Stagmire out there putting out a blog step by step. Here's here's what you need to know here and there and there. It was a blank. I mean, you came into it with whatever you were willing to put in in your own blood, sweat and tears as far as research was concerned and just kind of hoping for the best. 
Uh, I mean, again, we're talking about a Wild West game. This was the Wild West of <laughs> of uh, Kickstarter's history, really. This was uh, it was every every person for themselves. And uh, the thing that I always find interesting is is back when Dark Horse was kind of getting funded. This was a time when a lot of projects could get funded by just saying, uh, "Here's a here's a sketch of what I I'm hoping to accomplish." Uh, I mean, the, and, and think about that versus what we're talking about with project creators today, where, man, you better have your video proper. I mean, it doesn't have to be like movie star quality, but I mean, it, it's got to do the job what you needed to do. Make sure you've got your reviews. Make sure, you know, you've done your research. Make sure, you know, yeah, there's, there's just this laundry list of things. And I've said it before. I mean, you don't necessarily have to have all of them, but, uh, you better have two thirds of them to have a shot in the huge ocean that is now Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Most definitely. So back then, what did you do to get ready for your Kickstarter? I mean, again, you didn't have all these resources that are at everybody's fingertips today. What did you do to prep yourself for launch? Well, I think I had about, and I, I can't go my mind's blanking out, but I think I knew about Kickstarter roughly two months prior to launching. Like I said, I was the 43rd successful project, mm-hmm. so I got the pleasure of looking back at maybe 40 successful projects before me. And of those projects, a lot of them were role-playing games, and a lot of them were for, for cards or, or for oddball things. The very first successful project on Kickstarter was for Kingdom Death. He was uh, trying to get a, a miniature designed. And uh, it had nothing to do with a board game. It was just to get the, the money to, to start working on a specific miniature. So I saw all these projects, and I just started absorbing. And, and I go into my mode where I look at what these people are saying in their updates, and I'm studying their rewards. I had spreadsheets of uh, people's rewards that I would study back and forth. And I and basically what I ended up doing is I created a, a hybrid. I morphed together what I thought was the best aspects of all 40 projects that were successful before me. And to be honest, there wasn't a lot to pull from. There was no such thing as a stretch goal back then. But I had seen things about exclusives. So I, I put out an exclusive, which now I, I would never do, uh, especially an exclusive that is has a unique game mechanism in it. Mm-hmm. So there was just things that all I could do was really uh, try to imitate and copycat some of the other creators. And I thought back then that I, I did quite well. I mean, I don't know how many projects before me offered backers to become you know, have a caricature and then go into the game or to design their own cards. So uh, that was few and far between. And I thought that was a, an interesting aspect. Nowadays, you see it quite a bit. So that's basically what I was doing, I'd say, back then. I'm, so, I'm starting to starting to feel like an old man. <laughs> back in our day. <laughs> yep. But it, I mean, in, in uh Kickstarter lifetime, uh, it, it is, it's again, it, it, it's amazing to me the things that you kind of take for granted today. But like you said, I mean, there were no stretch goals. There were no things like that. You were pretty much, here's what I need. Please help me get there. Yep, <laughs> I mean, and, exactly. And just strictly based off of the pledge levels that I've thought of hopefully well ahead of time, but please help me get there. 
<laughs> kind of thing. <laughs> the one thing I, I do like, or I will point out is, I mean, again, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say it a thousand times until probably we hit to the, uh, the expansion here, but these were not the norms back then. But the one thing I do, I do kind of find kind of interesting and obviously helped your project along, uh, was, I mean, you did have, uh, the dice tower review. You did have Lance. Uh, you already had these things lined up that were not uh, standard as they are today. I mean, today, typically, if you don't have that kind of stuff, you're kind of floating on the ocean by yourself with a life, you know, and no life raft in, in sight. Back then, it was kind of like, oh, this is kind of cool. Kind of, it was more almost a novelty at that time <laughs> to uh-huh. have a reviewer actually talking about your game while it was on Kickstarter. That was obviously helpful for for your project, uh, but why did you decide to do that? Well, it's something that I kind of tied together when I was researching on Board Game Geek. I mean, I knew there was video reviews out there and uh, contacting people, and I knew if, if there was a way to communicate. And the other thing is, is that back then I wasn't very comfortable uh, on making, say, a video or doing some PowerPoint slides and recording that so I could show gameplay. So, and also it was biased. It was coming from me. So I knew the best way to try to convince backers was to get somebody else into that seat and have them communicate to other people that I've checked out the game and here's what I think. So I'm a big proponent of uh, reviews and columns and articles. And, and as you get to know my personality, you'll, you'll notice that I'm, I'm this little nerd that spends a lot of time researching and studying. Whatever word or whatever concept you tell me, I'll go look it up and search. Wikipedia is my friend. I must have uh, <laughs> spent, you know, 20% of my life on Wikipedia. So uh, back then, I, I wanted to try to get people to better understand what I was trying to do and not necessarily be in that seat. Because when it comes down to it, I, I can get a little bit shy and, and, and uh, have a problem with getting out into the public eye. But once you get me talking, then I'm fine. <laughs> and uh, we're having an awesome conversation here as well. But I just want to uh, ask you if you're all right if we go a little bit over. Oh, that's perfectly fine. I, I'm good to go. Because uh, yeah, we're, I mean, this is this is great stuff to me. <laughs> this is oh yeah, I again, love it. this is the uh, the heyday to the now nowadays. I'm loving to actually be able to talk to somebody again that that was back in that time frame, and again, somebody that was one of my very first supports. So this is a, this is a fun. I, I'm I'm having fun with this conversation. All right. So we've got Dark Horse. So it funded successfully. You got just shy of ten thousand dollars. You learned some lessons. So let's see. Some of the lessons that we've heard so far is uh, you don't recommend exclusives a- anymore. No, I, I and I think it's been a running discussion on on what you should do and how, how you should structure rewards. Somebody's going to write a book, and I think you even mentioned on, on, on a podcast that somebody is working on a book on Kickstarter. Jamie is. Jamie Stagmeyer is going to have a Kickstarter book out soon. Yep, and there are some great opportunities to really break down the ebb and flow of what needs to happen and how you need to stack your rewards and how many rewards you have. And uh, exclusives in general, uh, as long as they're not tied to a game mechanic, if a backer is getting something that is no longer provided down the road that adds unique gameplay, like what I did with my first Dark Horse campaign, I gave them a new player character card. And it's a variable player power. So going forward, I've been inundated by how many people want this because only the backers got that card. 
and and it's an interesting little character to play. And so, you know, some people may have different opinions, but it's something that no one down the road could ever get. So when you do that, and you don't openly say on Kickstarter, "Hey, this is going to be exclusive to this campaign or ex- exclusive to Kickstarter," but I may sell it at uh, conventions. I may offer it in the future as promotional items. What I said was, I said. No one else will ever be able to get this. I think that was almost my exact words. This is a unique item, and no one will ever be able to get a copy of the Kickstarter card. And I only printed 250 of them. So on the back, it says blank of 250, and I hand put the number in. I said, I put one through 250 on all those cards, and there they sit. So come back around to Rebels and Rogues, the expansion, a lot of people want that card. So I'm in a predicament, and you may even even see the update that I put that said, uh, what do you guys think? I made a backer-only uh, update, and I asked them. And uh, the general consensus is is that, you know, we know you said exclusive, but uh, it's probably worse that somebody wants to get this and they can't. So uh, I've made a decision, and I'll post this at some point down the road, that I'm going to go ahead and change the art and the name on the card and change the back a little bit. And I'm going to go ahead and, and call the card something else, but basically it's the Kickstarter card. Okay. And uh, I I don't think I'll ever do that in the future. Yeah, and I think I, I saw some some of the comment too lean towards well, it's it's still Kickstarter, so we're comfortable with it. Right, if I remember right? Yeah. So you know what? Let's go ahead and turn over, so I don't keep you terribly long. But I probably will anyway because I'm having fun with this. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Let, I'm I'm a night owl. So, <laughs> dark horse rebels and rogues. Let, let's go ahead and turn a little bit of the conversation over to that way. So now's your time for your, your high level pitch for the expansion. And you're assuming I'm prepared for that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, rebels and rogues has been simmering on the back burner for a couple of years while I've been going through and trying to you know get comfortable with publishing and working with designers. So. Long story short, uh, it's been in the works ever since Dark Horse was created. In fact, some of the elements inside of Rebels and Rogues were pieces that I couldn't, you know, with $8,000, I couldn't throw in the Hidden Agenda deck. And that's exactly what's happening is that I came to a point where I had to severely back off because of what I did with that early Kickstarter and put in less content. There already, like you said, there already is a lot of things inside of the Dark Horse board game. But if I would have had my way, I would have put even more in there. So maybe not the best marketing decision, but I just want it to all be out there. So the concept of hidden agendas and the uh, mystery hex tokens. And of course, I'll have to describe all this, but (laughs) these elements were thought of way back in 2009 and 10 as I was designing Dark Horse. But the real big uh, takeaway from the expansion is that it adds in a reputation system. And I've talked to a lot of people about this, and I can't myself can't really find any board game that really takes advantage of this to where... Somebody has a very specific reputation, just like in a role-playing game. You can be good, neutral, or evil. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to tie this concept around a setting that truly made sense. And the Wild West is one of the best settings to have a character that starts out as a good guy, but then in time turns into a bad guy, and even opposite. Uh, there were characters in the Wild West that were outlaws and then eventually became sheriffs. So it was just this odd time in history where people swayed back and forth. And that's what I've attempted to capture in the game is that while someone's playing 
one game of Dark Horse, during the, the middle of that game, they can change sides. And it all is based upon what actions they take. So you may start the game with uh, Wyatt Earp and Bat Masterson. But if things start to build up and you, and you start noticing that the stagecoach has a juicy amount of silver building up on it, you can start to take actions that gain you black hat tokens. That's the bad guys. Mm-hmm. And uh, you can switch sides. And then once you've switched sides and you, you go ahead and grab Billy the Kid, then you can start robbing from the game and you can start harassing players and taking jail actions and going back and forth. And uh, that's the true, uh, the true gem, I'd have to say. And, and that's what I've been really marketing is that uh, black hat, white hat concept of going back and forth and having that reputation. And all this reputation you're, you're gathering in tokens is worth victory points. So not only are you tracking reputation in the game, but every four reputation tokens you have is worth a victory point at the end of the game. So not only are you pulling these cards, but these cards are earning your victory points. So it's a different avenue to winning the game, as well as bringing you some really juicy and interesting options. And uh, I've added gunfights to the game because uh, as people who are familiar with Dark Horse uh, prior to this expansion, you've got this Wild West game, or at least a game that calls itself a Wild West game, but there's only a faint reference to, you know, a bank robbery or a faint reference to an event uh, where something bad happens. And uh, I just couldn't pack in all that information into the core game. So this is where I come back around and I introduce gunfights and the concept of uh, Billy the Kid may want to do something bad to me, kind of like the Raider action in Alien Frontiers, but I have a way to stop that. I can have a character fight back. I can challenge someone. If someone has a character that's causing havoc in the game, then I can go ahead and take an action. I can take the martial action, and I can try to hunt him down and form a, a posse. So there's that interaction and give and take. Uh, and I don't know how people are going to react to it, but you've got this Euro game that's set in the Old West, and I'm tacking on these Ameritrash elements that allow people to get characters and thematic progresses and technologies and just build all of this interesting abilities into the game. So if there's any AP involved, it may be all these juicy decisions. And I think that's the best AP in the world. It's not so much sitting there with seven dice trying to figure out where you're going to place them all. It's these unique characters that, you know, say, either I can rob the stagecoach and collect that silver or I can do this and knock somebody down in turn order. What's going to benefit me more? And then on top of all of that, I may gain more victory points by taking that action. So it's something that I, I wanted to introduce to the game. And above and beyond that, there's progress cards. And that allows people to, you know, build a saloon. They can build steel plows or mining lamps. And it helps them improve their, their abilities in the game. So you can gain resources easier. Or you can take actions easier or manipulate turn order or whatnot. And and there's scenarios, and that's one thing that I wanted to make sure. I have a lot of content in this expansion, but I broke it down into bite-sized chunks. And all of these little scenarios say, oh, you want to play with outlaws and, and heroes and lawmen? All right, well, this is the scenario for you. It'll add these four elements to the game, and you don't have to worry about these other pieces. You don't have to learn, you know, the whole book. You just have to know the sections that uh, pertain to these specific items. And the final takeaway is that a lot of these other actions, like uh, I had mentioned mystery hex tokens, I'm adding uh, hex tokens to the game. The, the earlier game had or wooden food, and uh, now I'm adding things like an outlaw hideout 
or a Native American tribe or buffalo herds and silver mines. And what, what people can do is, is they can react differently to that. So if I'm a bad player, I can turn over and gain access to the Native American tribe and I can use those tokens to rile up the Native Americans and harass another player. Or if I'm a good guy, then I can take the option of working with them and, and trading and, and, and benefiting with food and silver and whatnot. So your reputation also turns into juicy, meaty decisions that you have to make a decision on. Or do you go bad and then, you know, go down a different route altogether? So in a five, ten minute nutshell, that is the expansion. <laughs> well, and you, you say you're uh, not sure how people will take it, but uh, you've already got my buddy Cyrus's approval. You got Father Geek a- approved, which means all three uh, of his testing groups have uh, uh, said that this is uh, something that they enjoyed. So that's awesome mm-hmm. to see. And anybody interested, episode 33, we're going to record that next week and it'll hopefully be out by the weekend after, but uh, we are going that our, our review will be dark horse rebels and rogues. So uh, we're going to take a look at it as well and give our, uh, our full review at that time. So coming into putting this up on Kickstarter, what lessons did you bring in for, okay, I'm doing this again, so I, I, I want to make sure this is in place. Right. And, and that's a huge conversation in of itself. So I'll try to, <laughs> I'll try to hold my rambling down to a bare minimum, but I've been watching Kickstarter. I've been fascinated and I knew it was the pathway to distributing and producing my games back in 2011. Barring my crappy year in 2012, I still was backing and watching projects. And I think anyone out there that's listening, if you want to get on Kickstarter, the first thing you need to do is start backing projects and watching the updates and see what happens and learn the problems that happen in manufacturing. I mean, it's almost getting to the point where it's a little sickening to hear someone else say, you know, that customs, they weren't aware that customs would stop yes. a, a shipment. Or they weren't aware that, ooh, I didn't realize my artist could potentially have a life threatening accident and they can't produce the art or they don't have time to produce the art or, or something happens along the lines. Uh, you should not see indie publishers that are along as far as they are with multiple games and multiple successes making some of these mistakes. Indie publishers, I mean, people who are just putting the first one out there, I can understand, but it just takes that time to watch and understand and make a mental note as far as what needs to happen. And you And you've said it on a lot of your shows. You said, prepare, prepare, prepare. You need to be looking and thinking about the campaign and marketing it and who you're going to approach a year in advance. Now, on that same note, did I prepare a year in advance? (laughs) You know, I can't say that I really did. But, you know, I've wanted to release the Rebels and Rogues expansion in 2012. So I was already doing things and taking actions along those lines. I was building up a Twitter following. I was building up Facebook likes and, and following and trying to communicate with the members there. So on that side of the fence, I, I have been doing those things. I have been doing grassroots uh, marketing and talking. Uh, there's a lot of uh, people out there that are familiar with Dark Horse. I would be surprised if I have not had a personal message and conversation with almost 50% of the people that own Dark Horse. Uh, every time I get a copy sold, I, I handwrite a note. And I tell them thank you and uh, anything that we kind of talked about. And I'll throw in a little freebie or a playtest material or a piece of art. So like I said, going back to that conversation I had about wanting to interact with the game community, uh, if I ever get to a point where I can't do that, 
then something's wrong. And I need to, to look back at maybe someone else needs to be the primary face or the publishing side of it if I can't continue to send some neat playtest idea or, or, or comment back and forth to, you know, some person out there. My board game geek uh, mail message system is just covered with emails of, of talking to backers and, and, and communicating back and forth. Uh, I've talked to a lot of international people left and right. And I'm getting off track a little bit, but I think it's that it's that marketing and networking. You have to pay attention. You hit on one of my favorite keywords, and that's community. I've said it several times on the podcast proper and whatnot, but my entire take on being involved in this and having this place for people to come have a voice is to help foster the community. So I, I love that that's part of your thinking process. So that part is awesome. You know, you had kind of mentioned uh, that maybe you hadn't been full on full board promoting for the last two years or year and a half or uh, since you know since dark horse came out and you you put out the expansion but you have been building your community like you said that's correct you've been around you never really went away from the community and you're right i do end up saying that a lot and there's nothing wrong with being a year out, in fact, it's a good thing if you can be. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Basically, the sooner the better. But I basically had that conversation again recently. Uh, I've had, I get several people asking me to look at their Kickstarters or what they're, what's going on or, or can you give me feedback about this or, and, and whatnot. But I had somebody come up to me and say, I'm ready. I, I think I'm going to try to put up my Kickstarter next week. So I'm ready to start hitting Twitter and Facebook. And I, <laughs> I cringed. <laughs> And I said, by ready to start hitting Twitter and Facebook, do you mean that you did that a year ago and already have a community and some likes and all that stuff and have been talking about your game? Because I hope that's what you mean. So that it, it, you and I had a little conversation before we started too that, you know, it, some of that stuff still amazes me. And, and I, and I've said it before and I'll continue to say it and, until I no longer have breath. Huh. Uh, Especially today, especially in this day and age. Now, there, you can't, there's, there's no reason to go in that blind to yeah, Kickstarter. Exactly. There's never a reason. Now, there's some question about, you know, like a great interview I had with Matt Loader and, you know, he, and he questioned some of, you know, uh, the formula doesn't necessarily mean that it's the formula. And I, I agree with that. I mean, every project is different, but I still, subscribe to there is a form there is a formula there is a process that is kind of forming mm -hmm. and like i said you you probably need about two-thirds of it at least i mean there are some things you need to have a shot in what is today a huge huge market on kickstarter you're not one of five one of ten anymore no <laughs> you're one of hundreds i mean you can go on at any given day. There's there's cl probably close to a hundred projects that launch, mm -hmm. uh, if not a hundred or more per month. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's ridiculous to to kind of have that mentality. I I don't understand having that mentality. And that again, those are usually the people I go. All right, you know what? Let's take a step back. You're not gonna hit that publish button. <laughs> let's have let's have a conversation about this because you can't say. Now I'm going to try to, there, there, there are still a, a, a small group of people that think Kickstarter is my marketing. Right. And that is, that is such a fallacy. 
it's a piece of it, but there's so much that you should have done prior. Exactly. Especially with so many publishers out there and so many people jumping on Kickstarter, uh, you have yourself in the middle of a crowd of a hundred people saying, look at me, look at me. And it just doesn't work, especially now. Now go back in time, you know, when there was only so many projects to look at, you could very well get away with that. And I did because even though I only, you know, had a goal of 8,000, I had no marketing outside of that. And I'll be upfront and honest. I didn't have Twitter or Facebook. And I had, I'm a huge proponent of playtesting and unbiased playtesting. And, and it all goes back to Shadow Wars. And I've sent out so many playtest copies to people, you know, make pe- I, people's eyes spin on how many counters <laughs> I've cut out over the years. But you have to do that sort of thing. Uh, otherwise, you'll never make it. All right. So one of the things I like about your expansion project right now is I said for Dark Horse that you were doing some things that back then were, I'm not going to say gimmicky, but I mean, it's just people weren't doing as often. It it, it was kind of novel to see. And that, of course, is the review side of things. Mm -hmm. Back then, you had them all as as updates, which can be good as they come out. I, I always recommend people do that. I mean, you know, use them how you can use them for your project. And update fodder is an awesome way to do it. But the thing I like about your project right now is you've got them all out there and on the main page. And the ones that aren't in yet, you've got to be announced and and all that good stuff. But you're sharing them right away Mm -hmm. and showing that, yes, people are going to be looking at my project. Yes, people are going to tell you their opinion on yay or nay for this project. And uh, I I think that's great because I've done a lot of reviews in the past. And sometimes I don't quite understand why sometimes some people wanted me to do a review, even when we've done positive reviews that have never made it to the project, not even as an update. Oh, wow. Like I've gone out there and said, Hey, by the way, check this out. If you want to know more about this in their comment section. And that always baffles me. Mm -hmm. So I love that you have that right there on the front page. And again, I mean, it's still very easy for you to do as, as an update as they come in and say, Hey, it's, you know, this is out there now, but it's on the front page for people to see. And I always, like that because it's, again it's keep people on your front page as much as possible well because if someone takes a look at that and they're not really impressed but they noticed oh he's going to be talking to jeff king from all us geeks in a little bit then that may be someone that said oh i follow that podcast i love that podcast i'm going to you know stay tuned i might just back this and another thing you know i'd like to put out there is that the project page and the rewards are, are almost down to a specific science and a roadmap to success. I mean, you look at really successful projects and they follow a very distinct pattern. And for someone to stray from that, I think it's going to throw backers and they're going to be one of those people that barely hit 10, 20% of their goal. All right. I, I'm going to try to bring us quick or not quick, but I'm going to bring us to a wrapping up point here sure. soon uh, to let you go. But the one thing that you and I had a small conversation about before we started, uh, you want to talk about the, uh, the add-on versus stretch goal thing, mm-hmm. that conversation? That, cause that, that's kind of interesting to me too as well. It was just something that I stumbled across and I really hadn't thought about it. And I think certain things project creators won't notice until they actually get in there and start to see people reacting differently. And what surprised me was, is that back in, 2011, I didn't really have anything that I could determine as a stretch goal. Uh, I had an exclusive. 
Uh, and there wasn't any add-ons to, to the project. So I knew coming back around that anything I did in the future would, of course, have to have stretch goals and would have to have add-ons. There are ways to make money. But once I actually got into Rebels and Rogues, I started to notice something. I started to notice that a lot of my add-ons, I'm not, not every backer, but I mean, I'd say a third of my backers are picking up add-ons. Uh, because they're value added. And, and I've tried to make my add-ons uh, very cost effective. I'm not trying to charge somebody $10 for one card. I don't think that's fair. And I'm always going to make sure to underprice uh, my stuff, which I'm not necessarily in it for the money. But uh, long story short, it surprised me that you have this distinct choice between making something a stretch goal or offering it as an add-on. And what makes, and up to this very second in time, I don't know what the answer to this is yet, but it would make for a very you know, good discussion amongst people as to what defines what's the best type of content for a board game or a card game to be thrown into a stretch goal. Is that something along the, lo- along the lines of better components? Or is that something that adds, you know, some type of, you know, new card or additional cards or tokens? And then what should be an add-on? And at the second, like I said, I, I don't know what the answer is, but I see that there is a difference. For example, anything that I offer as a stretch goal, would that have been better served to be an add-on? Would I have uh, potentially had a better chance of funding the project if some of my stretch goals were add-ons or some of my add-ons were stretch goals? So I don't think anyone's really talked about that and come up with a conclusion. So I just thought that would be interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And actually having you kind of ask it, I know I've, I've started formulating some things in my head uh-huh. just listening to it, but, uh, it, it is interesting. And like, and like we were talking about before, you see it all the time where, you know, there's a, there's a stretch goal just, just barely over the horizon that may not get met. And I'd, I'd say a good 80% of the time you're going to see a string of, Backers asking, can we just add this on instead? Can can this become an add-on? Right. And so, yeah, that whole when do you do what is a good thing that may, maybe that maybe that's our next step in the Kickstarter evolution. Maybe that's one of the conversations that's going to have to uh, happen here in soon because one of the other thing. I mean, the first thing I I think of when you say that is you also have to take into account can this financially be an add-on, right? What if only 10 of my backers take this for some reason? Mm-hmm. Can I support it still for those 10 people, right? I mean, that those kind of things you got to kind of calculate in there as well. Mm-hmm. And, and you're right. That's exactly something. Like, you, you, you really hit the nail on the head. One of my stretch goals is to add additional hex tokens. And I know that that's not something that I can easily add in as a, as something that I can tack on unless I know how many people really want it. So it's more of the place of everybody gets it type of thing. Because if I'm to set aside space on a punch board and only a set amount of people want that, I'm really shortchanging, you know, the, the design of the game and, and the content and how much I'm charging for the game because I've made a poor choice in making something a stretch goal versus an add-on or vice versa. And then one of the problems you can potentially have then with the add-on side of things is you're creating potentially a lot of different variations of your game. Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's a laundry list. Yeah. So doing it yourself, I mean, if you're, if you're handling everything internally, uh, you've created more work for yourself, but it might be feasible. But say going through a fulfillment center, 
uh, they may not be up for that, right? <laughs> they might not be up for, well, these three copies get this, this five copies get this, you know, that kind of stuff. So those are all kind of things you got to take into consideration with the uh, stretch goal add-on uh, uh, factor as well. Mm-hmm. So yeah, there's, there's a lot of, lot of things. These things are tricky, people. <laughs> it's, it's not as simple as just doing it. It's the research and the thinking about it and the calculating it out. Yeah. If you, if you don't, if you, if you, if those things are headaches to you, yeah, that's, that's why companies like Game Salute and stuff exist. Exactly. <laughs> All right. You know what? Let's see. Uh, give me somebody's checking out Dark Horse Rebels and Rogues. Uh, let's say, uh, they're coming in cold. Uh, and, and they're potentially thinking about taking, taking you up on the, uh, I'll get the base game and Dark Horse Rebels and Rogues. What's the, uh, what's, what's your one thing that if somebody's on the fence about that would make them go, I have to back this project? Now, when you say that, uh, do you mean kind of in lines of the Rebels and Rogues expansion or? In, in lines with the Re- Rebels and Rogues. I mean, okay. it, it's, you can take it either way, I guess, or somebody coming in and say, do I really need this expansion? Right. And I would say there's a perfect answer to that. Number one, if I don't get my funding, I can always relaunch again later on. But I've actually considered on not even relaunching until I've done a couple more games. So if it doesn't get funded now, then there's a very good possibility that it won't come back online for quite a while. And we're almost out of uh, stock on the original Dark Horse. So I think come back around, say, this summer if I relaunch it. I may only be able to offer a hundred copies of the game, and they very well could be sucked up in early bird rewards. And the other thing on uh, is that the Rebel and Rogues expansion, I really feel adds something interesting and new that you can't really get in in other games that I'm aware of. So the idea of that reputation and going back and forth, and in the middle of a game, changing sides and having a different set of choices that drastically affect the game. That's something that I feel, you know, I may not be the first one to bring it to board games, but I'm sure that there has not been many out there that I can ever think of. And I've been looking at stuff since early 90s. So that's my takeaway from everything. And listening to you talk a little bit about Rebels and Rogues uh, and knowing your background and stuff as well, I got this very cool computer RPG vibe off of, again, the uh, the influence or the... Uh, Reputation system, mm-hmm. making your choices and deciding which side, you know, white hat or black hat. Are you going to rob? Are you, are you going to go after wanted criminals? All that kind of stuff. That and the, uh, scenario learning of, of the rules, bringing them in piece by piece, which is equivalent to tutorials in computer games now. Mm-hmm. So I I think those are very cool factors because again Dark Horse I, I I love Dark Horse uh, I've had a lot of fun with it you know kind of the reviewer's curse is you don't get the games that you love to the table as much as you would like sometimes <laughs> so I'm relearning Dark Horse but it, it was one of those things where it's pretty hefty up front uh, once you get it out on the table and start and, and start playing it it all falls into place but just going from the rule book sometimes was a little hefty. So the fact that going into Rebels and Rogues and learning it or introducing it piece by piece is kind of cool. I, I think that was a great addition for you to add into the expansion to let people ease into learning the new stuff. So that, that is awesome. Thank you. I, I mean, I, I really, uh, 
I really appreciate someone noticing that, that that has come about. So, and, and actually to, to, to give someone a nod, uh, Richard Ham, Rado runs through. That was some feedback that he gave me on the early expansion earlier this year. Uh, he's had a copy of the, uh, alpha test stuff, uh, since I'd say spring. And he said, uh, he said that same thing. He said, you know, this is a lot to take in. So, you know, you might want to break it down in different ways. And that was the catalyst to kind of go out there and try to bring this into uh, something that was bite-sized chunks. I think it worked, sir. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I think you think you've hit on something. It's it's a cool thing to see. Again, it, I kind of uh, equate it to most computer games today. You you go through the their tutorials or the the first thing that you do in the game is really going to okay, here's how you shoot your weapon. Here's how you change weapons, you know, all that kind of stuff Mm -hmm. until you're up to like, it's just, it's just natural for you to do while you're playing the game. Right. And that's kind of what I equate this to is your start. Okay. Like you said, you want to know about the uh, reputation system. Okay. Here's, here's what you do. Here's the scenario you play, all that kind of good stuff. So excellent. Uh, right. We're gonna, again, I could do this. I could do this forever, (laughs) Don. This is, this is great, but we're going to go ahead and uh, try to wrap this one up here. So we got Dark Horse, Rebels and Rogues. Again, check the show notes, people. I'm going to have a link to the campaign there. Don and I talked earlier. He's going to get me an image. He's going to have an ad on the website as well. So if you just hit the All Us Geeks website, there'll be a, an image and a link to the Kickstarter there as well. He is looking for this time around. Hey, remember, Dark Horse, two years ago, was looking for $8,000. We're looking for fifteen thousand this time around. I doubled. <laughs> and <huh? laughs> I doubled it. <laughs> yeah. And he made uh, just shy of ten last time. He's already at uh, a little over forty five hundred this time, and he's just recently launched because this campaign is going until December twelfth. Okay, so December twelfth, two thousand thirteen. Before that time, you guys need to get out there, check out Dark Horse uh, Rebels and Rogues back this project. I'm super excited to see this come back around and I'm super excited that I've been able to talk to Don. So check out the campaign, give it a little bit of love. If you go there because you listened to this and you thought Don was an awesome guest, let him know that as well. I I always appreciate when you guys let me know, but uh, let the people that come on know as well. (laughs) Make sure they get some love too. And I know some of you have been in it because it's been getting back to me. So thanks a lot. Don, my man, thanks for coming on the show. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure. I, I've absolutely loved to talk with you. This is the, uh, this is the exact gamer community interaction type of stuff that I fall in love with. So no, actually thank you. Well, and, uh, nothing, uh, nothing written in stone, but, uh, we may hear from Don more in the future. Don and I will be talking about that, uh, later off air. But, uh, it, Don, you are always welcome back here, sir. We've had that conversation earlier, but, even more so now because we've had this wonderful conversation that I've absolutely enjoyed. So come back anytime and future projects for sure, man. <laughs> That'd be great. Come back and let us know what's going on. I will do. All right, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us. And again, Dark Horse Rebels and Rogues. Go check it out.